Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 24. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and at this point in the book, Paul and Silas and their little team are on their second missionary journey, but on this journey, they've been redirected by the Holy Spirit from what they were planning on doing and where they were planning on going to somewhere a little bit different. So they've been led by the Spirit into what we know to be Europe in the city of Philippi. And here things get difficult again. Acts chapter 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us. We know that you have given the church teachers and preachers, and for this we are all grateful. But with all of the help possible, Lord, the greatest help we have is that your Holy Spirit would actually soften our hearts to receive the truth of your word, to believe your word, and to be changed by it. So, Lord, we're not looking to be more informed today. We're looking to be transformed. We trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever get burned for doing the right thing? You, know, you do the thing you're supposed to do? You, do, you play by the rules, you're a good person, and, uh, and then you get destroyed because of it. Has that ever happened to you? I know it has. It happens to everybody. I mean, even if you're just playing a game, you're playing a game with, uh, with some people. Maybe you're on a team, and the other team is cheating, or maybe the, the, your opponent in a, in a competition is cheating. You know they're cheating. They're definitely cheating. You can't prove it, but it's, it's a fact. It's happening. And, uh, but you're going to be the bigger person. Like, I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to stoop to that level. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... I'm going to play fair, is what I'm going to do. And then you lose. Right? It happens. It happens. Or you think about like a, like a whistleblower, somebody who has seen something bad happen, maybe in a corporation or, or in a religious institution or in a church, right? And you've got like a, a whistleblower. This means a person who's going to come out and tell the truth, right? They're going to defy the culture. They're going to, they're going to let everybody know. And so they do the right thing. And then what happens to them? Sometimes they wind up no career, their finances are destroyed, the relationships, uh, the reputation can be destroyed. It's not always the case, but it oftentimes is. Sometimes you do the right thing and you pay a price for it. 
And that's very much true for Christians. Every Christian I've ever had this conversation with has experienced this. We are going through something that is difficult, and you could do the right thing or the wrong thing in that situation, so figure it out in your own life. There's too many possibilities. Things are tough. You could make it easier on yourself by cheating, sinning, going the wrong way, or you can go God's way. You go God's way, and things get worse. Have you ever prayed that God would help you in a particular area and it gets worse? I have. That happens. And then we're, then we're stuck, right? Because then we're like, what? hey, God, I thought we were on the same team, man. I thought, like, I was your guy and, like, you're my God. And so I thought, like, if I'm going to do things your way, you're going to take care of me. You're going to bless me. And by bless me, I mean you're going to bless me in the way that I want to be blessed, right? You're going to take care of me, protect me, give me the things that I want. And that just isn't always the case. And so what happens when we, when we face the consequences of righteous actions, sometimes there comes a testing of our faith. And that's what I want us to see today. The principle that I want us to hold on to as we look at this passage together is this. The consequences of our faithfulness includes the testing of our faith. We don't think that it will be, right? Because you think like, man, faithfulness means I'm rocking with faith. I'm doing the good thing. But when you, when you are faithful to God and you do what he's called you to do, and then the consequence of that is difficulty, hardship, suffering, affliction, with that oftentimes comes a testing of our faith. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide this into two sections, right? The first small section is the context of faithfulness. The context of faith, where we actually do the things we're called to do. And then secondly, the consequence of faithfulness, which oftentimes is difficulty. So first, verse 16, the context of faithfulness. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. The ordinary Christian life, right, is one that is lived in the world, not apart from the world, not radically separated from the world, not lived in isolation from the world. The ordinary Christian life is lived in the context of a fallen, broken, rebellious, idolatrous world. In other words, we are supposed to live among a people that God has actually sent us to. Right? The whole monastic movement is cute. It is not biblical. I'm not trying to hate on other traditions and whatnot, but the reality is, is we are called to participate in a culture for redemptive purposes, to show them the way of Christ, to preach the gospel, to see lives changed, to see God glorified. Seclusion is not our calling. So we're supposed to live in the context of this fallen world. And we see that this is what, like, Paul and Silas and the crew are doing, right? They're, they're, now they're in Philippi. They're, they're doing their thing. They're, they're doing this ordinary Christian life. They're preaching the gospel. They're making disciples. And where is he going? He's going to the place of prayer. This is an ordinary, normal thing that Christians do. He goes to an established place of prayer. Right? Lydia was recently converted. This woman, she was really successful, business-type woman. She's converted, and now her house becomes sort of like a hub in Philippi. People like to gather there. They worship there. Well, Paul's on his way to the place of prayer. Maybe it's her house. Maybe it's, this, it's her house or it's someone else's, but it's a recognized place where Christians are gathering, right? So he's going. They're going to the place of prayer. This is where they meet with God in a special way, and God meets with them, and they pour out their hearts. It's where God is at work among his people in a particular way. They are seeking God, and they are finding God in this place of prayer. Remember, they don't have study Bibles, much less apps 
and, and, and programs that you can download onto your computer. They don't even have New Testaments at this point. They have the Old Testament scripture, but they don't have it in their back pocket. They have to go to the synagogue to get that. And where are they? Europe. Right, So they're recalling the scriptures that they're familiar with. If there happens to be synagogues anywhere in the vicinity, then maybe they can get uh, material that way. But they are largely praying and seeking the Lord as they recall the scripture that they are familiar with. So they're gathering together. They're seeking God. They're finding God. God is at work. And this is where Satan wants to get in. He wants to get involved because God's working. He's already seen a pretty dramatic conversion of Lydia and her household. Things are happening. Satan doesn't like it. And so this is a great place to attack. And so he does by means of a slave girl. Right, we read about this, this slave girl. She is a fortune teller. Okay, she's a fortune teller. Uh, she makes a lot of money, but not for herself because she is a slave. So actually, all the money that she makes goes to her her owners. Now, it doesn't just say that she's a slave girl that tells fortunes. It says she has a spirit of divination, right? So she is more than just a con artist. So let me just say this, in case you're confused. Fortune tellers are lying or cheating or tricking you. Fortune tellers are largely scammers and con artists. Okay, largely that's what they are. They aren't all con artists, and I'll tell you why. I think this is an example. This girl is not a con artist. There are, South, there are people out there that will tell fortunes and, and say that they can prophesy, and they are lying. They are putting on a show merely to make money. This young woman has some kind of a spirit. She's possessed by a spirit, by a demon. She's possessed. And th now that she is possessed, she possesses a kind of power in fortune-telling. And I don't believe that means that she has the ability to tell the future like an actual prophet, but it does mean that she has the power to manipulate, persuade, and convince in ways that many people do not. She's specially gifted by the evil one to con people. So she may be believing all of this. She may believe it's true because she does have this, this supernatural uh, ability given to her. But whatever is happening, she's not just a con artist. Something profoundly spiritual is happening. She is not just a slave. She is an enslaved slave. She's lost her earthly freedom, and she has lost all spiritual freedom. She is possessed. This is where two worlds are colliding, right? This is the context of faithfulness. These two worlds coming together, right? You have, you have the, the, the Christian and the unchristian, or the even the anti-Christian. This is the context of faithfulness. We are called to do our ordinary Christian living, ministering, outreach in a world that is hostile, at least in parts. Right? I mean, every culture, believe it or not, every culture is hostile to Jesus. Now, you could say, like, well, there are, there are cultures, like, you can go to some states and some cities where they're more Jesus-friendly. Sure, sure. But you take the unconverted culture there and apply all of what Jesus says, does, and is, and you will find opposition. They might be friendly to part of it, but not all of it. Not until people believe. So here we have this context of faithfulness. This is where we live out our lives. We see Paul doing it. So 
Let's talk about the consequence of faithfulness because Paul, Silas, crew, they're there, they're doing their thing, they're being faithful, and the consequence of being faithful is, in his case here, first, mocking. Look at verses 17 and 18. She's following Paul, and she's crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and she kept doing this for days. That doesn't sound so bad. How's that mocking? She's telling the truth, right? She's telling, that's, these men are servants of the Most High God. Wow, that's, that's pretty good. Is she a believer? That's pretty good. Who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's dead on. She's a sharpshooter with truth, right? So why would we be upset at that? It's not praise. She's pestering. She's mocking. You can imagine her. I read this and I go, these men are servants of the most. She's going, oh, these men are servants of the most. High God. She's totally mocking them. By mocking somebody, right, you, you, you lead people to believe that it's not worth believing in, right? Like, oh, this is silly. This is nonsense. Oh, here come the, the saviors. Here come the people that are going to bring you redemption. She speaks truth, but she's not helping. And I love I love that here Paul gets annoyed. I love it because I'm annoyed every day of my life in every conceivable situation. I am always annoyed. There are, I have two modes, annoyed and sleeping. That's it. I am always annoyed, and I look at Paul, and he's not annoyed. He's greatly annoyed. Oh, I love it. Now, of course, Paul has a reason to be annoyed. 99% of the time, I have no justifiable reason to be annoyed. I'm just broken on the inside. Uh, I'm, I'm permanently dissatisfied. Paul is greatly annoyed. Why? I mean, what, what's the problem? It's because she's mocking. And in mocking them, she is blaspheming God. She's not blaspheming God by articulating a heresy. She's blaspheming God by mocking him. She's taking his name in vain. So this grieves Paul. Plus, she's a horrible distraction. He's trying to preach the gospel and reason with people and make connections and make arguments. He's trying to press the truth. And there she is, bop, 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 all day long, nonstop, chattering away, distracting people. So he is annoyed, mocking. It's the consequence of being faithful. You will be mocked like Paul. And we should expect this. This shouldn't be a surprise. We shouldn't be like, oh, I can't, I can't believe. I can't believe the world make fun of me. I can't believe they're making fun of me for believing what I believe. We believe crazy things, at least according to the world, right? I mean, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, that, that this Jewish-born carpenter's son is God in the flesh? that he had no earthly father to sire him. He was the offspring of the Holy Spirit, right? Really, he was born through the Virgin Mary, that he, he fulfilled all righteousness, that he died, and he, he was God in the flesh, and that he died and rose again and then ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. That sounds like Zenu bizarro weirdness, okay, to many people in the world. It's so foreign. It's so different. So, yes, we shouldn't be surprised that they mock us. And the reality is this, you just, you can't live in the world as a citizen of heaven and expect it to be different. You can't live as a citizen of heaven in the world and not get frustrated because if they aren't mocking you, you are going to be pained at their idolatry. You're going to be grieved over the destruction that they're experiencing of their own souls. So how does Paul respond and how should we respond? Mocked, 
This lady's annoying. What does he do? Does he stoop down to her level? Because that's what I would want to do. Oh, you're going you're gonna to come make fun of me? You're going to mock me? I will win. Listen, I'm a tiny little guy who got beat up and mocked as a little kid. I learned how to get a sharp tongue. I will win an insult game, a roast battle. Like, let's go. Like, that's what I would want to do. I would want to stoop down and go, oh, you want to play? Let's play. And I would make her look so stupid that I would feel better. But in the process, there's no demonstration of divine power. Paul's not stupid like me. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he does the thing that we're supposed to do when we're confronted with mocking from the world. He just gives them more Jesus. What does he do? He casts out the demon. He doesn't stoop to her level and, and function like, uh, like a, another person in the culture would. Instead, he goes to the deepest, most profound level, the spiritual level. And he casts out this demon, and the demon is gone. Like, listen, get this. Paul's goal here is not to rid the, the Roman Empire of slavery. It needs to get, be getting rid of, right? We, we understand this, right? It's not great. Okay, so, but that's not his goal. His goal isn't even to get her to stop blaspheming. His goal is to see her spiritually liberated. That's his ultimate goal, right? To see her freed. Freed from the, the satanic, demonic oppression and ultimately come to believe in, God, in Jesus. So what does he do? He casts out the demon in the name of Jesus. He gives her a profound liberty that she could never achieve on her own and by, and by no one in the world. And we're hoping, we're looking that she will ultimately trust the Lord. This is what Paul does. He goes to the spiritual level, which is what we're supposed to do. The consequence of faithfulness is sometimes mocking, and when it's not mocking, it's persecution. It gets worse. You look at verses 19 through 21. Right, what happens? It says that the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. She's been liberated, and now she doesn't work. Right? She can't do her thing. She, she's not convincing anymore. She's not powerful anymore. Something has changed. And so what do they do? Well, her owners are upset. They drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the rulers. And then what do they say? They start lying, and they start fear-mongering. This is what they do to, start up, to apply pressure to them. They start, now, what do, what do you mean they're, they're lying? What's the first thing that they say? These men are Jews. That's not a lie. That's the truth, right? But again, it's not what they're saying. It's, what, it's, it's how they're saying it and why they're saying it. To say that these men are Jews, they're not just being, hey, everybody, just so you know, no big deal, but they're Jewish. That's not what he's, they're going like, these guys are Jews. Like, these are the bad guys. And this was a thing, right, in this time in the Roman Empire, Roman Empire didn't like the Jews. They were suspicious of the Jews, and, and things could get out of hands in their estimation. And so um, the like, Jewish people tried to convert other people to Judaism, like, not okay. You're not to make any proselytes or any converts. Um, and in fact, like, there, was, there was a situation not, not far from this, right? Not far removed from this. This is in the minds of a lot of people that are in, in Philippi, which is like a, a Roman uh, city or a Roman outpost anyways. And so there's... It would have been AD, AD 49. AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews uh, from Rome. Why? Because they had created a disturbance. So whatever went down, right? We don't have time to get into all of it. Whatever went down, now we have people 
coming up to these Roman authorities saying, hey, you see these Jewish people? Yeah, you know them. Don't like them. Well, they've been causing a disturbance. Remember what happened before? And so now, like, just like they were cast out, we got to do something here because these people are, they are doing things. They're creating a disturbance, and they're, they're calling us to do things that are illegal. So we have a mix of fear-mongering, racism, and lying. What did these what did they do but preach the gospel and deliver someone from satanic oppression? They did the right thing, and now they're facing the consequences of that, which is a kind of persecution. It's difficult. It's not good. In fact, what happens? Well, the crowd gets riled up. They're like, yeah, let's go. Let's get rid of these guys. And so the magistrates, that is, so now you've got, basically you have corrupt uh, courts and crooked cops and a, a a satanic like group of people all working together to get these guys stripped, they're beaten, they're thrown into prison, and they're not in gen pop, right? They're, they're not where you can stretch your legs, like, you know, kind of what, maybe lift weights, you know, play basketball. I don't know what they're doing at gen pop. Uh, they're not there. They're put into the inside, inner part of the cell, the text says. And that means that they've been put in a place where there is little mobility. And they're not just put there. They're locked up in the darkest, tightest place of the prison. And they're shackled, which sounds like cartoon cute, like, oh, like ball, ball and chain, like little shackle. Like, oh, I've seen that before. Three Stooges, see the ball and the chain. No, the shackling is torture. Their ankles are shackled and their legs are spread into a painful contortion. They were doing what God wanted them to do, right? They were being faithful to God and look at where they're at. And this is the end of the scene. It's rough. It's painful. And in those moments, it's, it's not uncommon for us to go, why am I doing this? I mean, you read the Psalms, right? Like Psalm 73. And you read the Psalms and they say things like, hey, Lord, you know, uh, life hasn't really gone the way that I thought it would. And I know that you're supposed to be good and kind to us and provide for us, but you know what? Life, life's pretty difficult right now. And it looks like the bad guys are winning and it looks like the good guys are losing and I'm in misery here and I've been faithful to you. And then they'll say things like this, perhaps I have in vain kept my hands innocent all these years. In other words, maybe I'm wasting my time. What's happening is the consequences of faithfulness sometimes... It will test our faith. Do you really believe? So we have two worlds at war here constantly, the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. There's always going to be fighting, and if there's going to be fighting, sometimes you're going to lose. I know Jesus wins. We, I, yes, Jesus wins. There's going to be a great resurrection. There's going to be a day of the Lord. But until then, there are going to be many fights and many battles that you lose. So we, we got to figure out, like, what am I going to do with this, right? If the consequences of my faithfulness will include the testing of my faith, I better be prepared for those negative consequences, and I better know what to do. So let me just say this. Christian, in your life, in your ministry, in the church, we are supposed to take on the world, but we're supposed to take on the world through the preaching of God's word, through the preaching of Scripture, through the making of disciples. We take on the world, the world spiritually. And when we do this, we will be attacked we will suffer. Things will not always go the way that we want, and we, we will face great and dark difficulties. So here's the question. When you find yourself in a situation where you are doing what God wants you to do, but now things, because of that, are harder, what do you do? What's your perspective? Maybe you should ask, like, 
Am I going to be delivered? Do you expect to be delivered? Do you expect to be delivered from the pain? Because if you do, let me just tell you, it ain't coming. Not anytime soon, anyways. I mean, sometimes we do get delivered from the pain. Sometimes it happens. But most of the time, in my experience and in my reading of God's word, the pain remains. You remember Stephen. Did God deliver him from that pain? Well, I guess if you count dying, being murdered, having his skull crushed, as he was preaching the gospel to people that he loved, to his own people, to his own culture. Or do you know, uh, do you know Perpetual and Felicity? It sounds like a sitcom, um, a hipster sitcom. It's not. Perpetual and Felicity were uh, two Christian women uh, who were murdered in 204, 203 AD. They were martyred. Christian women, known, respected, esteemed. And in 203 in Carthage, city off the coast, northern Africa, killed by the Roman Empire because of their witness, their faithfulness, and their refusal to renounce Jesus. And so they, they take these women who have been faithful. They're doing what they're supposed to do, and they take them and they bring them into the arena, and they let loose wild animals to devour them separately, and um, they get tore up. They get, they get really tore up, but they don't die. Then the Roman soldiers bring them out to the center of the, uh, the arena and then let gladiators come in to finally kill these women who've been torn apart. And what does it say when you read the history books on them? What were those women doing as they sat there in a bloody mess? They, it said that they were praying and comforting one another until they stopped breathing. Yeah, God, God listen, <laughs> more than likely the pain that you're experiencing right now is going to persist for a time. The promise is not that God's going to deliver you of your pain, but that he will deliver you from despair. He will deliver you from defeat. He will not let you be defeated. Listen to Romans. We read this earlier today. It's really important, but listen to it now in light of what we've been reading. Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things, these difficulties, these, these frustration points, these losses that we might take in the world? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, many people are going to bring charges against us, right? But his point is, it's God who justifies, so it doesn't matter. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. It says, for your sake... We have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in our being slaughtered, eaten and torn apart by animals until we are killed by thugs with swords, we are more than conquerors, even in that, through him who loved us. And then he says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So 
Paul says, yeah, um, the world can take their best shot. They can come at us hard, but what they cannot do is they cannot strip away God's love for us. It is indissoluble. It is unwavering. He always loves us, and he is therefore always present with us. So even if you take away my very life, you can't take away my God. And he is the God who is just, who judges all men fairly. So I know that in the end, there will be, there will be victory. Just not a worldly one. Not necessarily, anyways. So let me just say this um, to the Christians here. When the world is against you, be confident that God is with you. God does not promise you ease of life. He promises you peace in life. A peace that surpasses understanding that stems from who he is, his spirit in you, guarding your heart and your mind. He does not promise you any worldly win, but he does promise you a spiritual victory. So when your faith is tested, you can say, wow, I'm doing the right thing by the grace of God, and things are really difficult now, but praise God that he has not given up on me or abandoned me. I know that he is with me, and he will see me through to the end. And to the non-Christian, if you're not a believer, I just want to say this to you, because this was helpful for me when I was uh, a young non-Christian myself. You may not... You may not be spiritually or demonically possessed, but you are possessed. You're owned. You're possessed by the world. You're possessed and owned by your sin. You are enslaved. Jesus says this. You are enslaved to your sin. Everyone is enslaved to their sin. And the only liberty, the only victory, the only freedom that we can actually find in freedom from sin and the devil and the world comes through Jesus. That's it. There is no other being, there is no other program, there is nothing out there that can actually liberate your soul from that kind of bondage. Jesus can, and he does, and it's real. If you're not a Christian, please talk to some Christians that are here, and they will, they will tell you. And freedom, freedom is glorious. It's what you're meant to be. You're made to be freed from those things that you might be faithful to another, even though that faithfulness comes with consequences that, that the world doesn't like and therefore applies pressure to us, let me assure you, Jesus offers you freedom and life. So look to him, believe in him, trust him with us, and we'll follow him together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you, uh, would you continue to teach us and we've looked at your word, Lord, and we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but what we really need is we, we need your spirit to attend to what we have heard. Just like these Christians going to the, the place of prayer, Lord, would you bring to mind the things that we've heard in your word, and would you bring about change in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, would you, would you work great grace in each of us? We pray, God, I pray that everyone here would believe and draw close to the Savior. In his name we pray, amen.